Let's pray together. Father, here is our confession. We have no merit. We have nothing that makes us beautiful. We have nothing that makes us want to tell the truth or be kind. In all things, we are in desperate need, Lord. And so when we come to you, it is with empty hands. Thank you, Lord, that you have accepted Christ's sacrifice and given us right standing, given us his beauty, his truth, his life. And Lord, because of that, you are knitting together a people. You are weaving the lives of this church together. And I pray that that would have dividends in our own lives and in this community. Do not stop. Do not give up on us, Lord, but grow us into Christ's image. And in that hard process, Lord, we give you praise. Amen. We are reading together from Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor 
and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arabah, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. These are, uh, we're actually preaching on Genesis 35 and 36 this morning, and these are long chapters. Uh, If you have your Bible uh, with you, um, or if not, there's one in the pew in front of you probably, Uh, would you open that up and, and have that open to chapters 35 and 36? If you look at chapter 36, it's an interesting chapter. It's a wall of names, and they are Esau's descendants. At the end of chapter 35, we get Jacob's descendants, and those are contrasted with each other and an important part of the sermon this morning. As we move into the final chapters uh, that focus on the life of Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau, Uh, To fully understand the implications of our text, it's vitally important that we understand that God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not only an example of His faithfulness for His people today, but is in fact His faithfulness to His people in all times. Numerous uh, times the New Testament reminds us that the children of Abraham, those who receive the same covenant as Abraham, are not defined by a biological relationship, uh, such as Ishmael or Esau, but by the fact that they have received faith, such as in Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed." So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
So when we see God's covenant faithfulness to Jacob and his family here in these chapters, we are to see the way in which he has been faithful to his church, his people, and he will continue to do so. And so we need to apply these not just to the way distant past to a different people group, but to understand that this is actually the way God was faithful to his people so that their lineage brought about Jesus, and Jesus integrated as the, the vine who brings branches to be connected to him, Jesus brought people from every nation, tongue, and tribe to be part of the family of God. So this is the story of our people. Our text this morning begins with an amazing mercy and grace. This is the good news, the gospel in Genesis 35. Because in the last chapter, we saw massive moral failure in Jacob and his children, which resulted in death and captivity for the tribe of Hivites they dwelt near. But, but once again, according to his faithfulness, God takes the initiative to renew the covenant with this sinful and flawed people. And so let's read again the first four verses of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, so you see how this starts out? This has been rough stuff, major moral failure, sexual immorality, murder, and God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me on the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. This is the faithfulness of God. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And so in the previous chapter, Genesis 34, we saw two terrible examples of how God's people could live in Canaan when confronted by the world's wickedness. Jacob was passive. His sons were violent returning evil for evil. As we've seen throughout Genesis, living in the land is risky business. To be God's people in this world. Israel cannot leave the land, nor can they just kill all the Canaanites. And so they must find a way to stay in the land with the Canaanites and yet practice faithfulness. And so the only way for God's people to live in the world without either destructiveness or accommodation is by way of radical symbolization. So Israel is visibly set apart from its pagan neighbors by God's commands. In fact, we see this in the law of Moses repeatedly where they're told how to dress, how to trim their beard, how to eat, how, how to do everything in life so that they would be set apart visibly with this what I call radical symbolization. We've seen that passivity and violence are not feasible options. But a third way is presented in this chapter. Dramatic disengagement from the worldly powers and practices which endanger our created purpose as the, those called to image God. 
Jacob is reminded of God's covenant and of his vow. The primary requirement is exclusive allegiance to the Lord. God permits no rivals, no good luck charms. Thus, the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods. In our text, God commands worship in the time and place of His choosing. But it is actually Jacob who takes the initiative and leadership and preaches to his household, verse 2, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And then he then, verse 4, took all the foreign gods that they had, which would have included the household gods that Rachel had stolen from her father, along with the idols and magical amulets that they plundered from Shechem. And essentially, he dumps them into an unmarked grave. It perhaps surprises us that the chosen people were collecting idols along the way. Even more telling is that God's people repeatedly get this command in Scripture. And each time they are commanded to put away your foreign gods, they seem to have amassed a whole bunch more idols they have to unload. So it happens when they leave Egypt. It happens after they've been in the wilderness 40 years. They're coming into the promised land, and again they're told, hey, get rid of all the idols. Where did they get all the idols from? They just keep on amassing idols, foreign gods. John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. It is our propensity to imagine a God in our own image according to our own capacity to understand. There are well-meaning people who call themselves Christians, but when they cannot understand the God of the Bible, they create a new God for themselves that fits with their own way of thinking and their own sensibilities. And so a God of love doesn't look like the kind of love we see in Scripture. No, it's a kind of tolerance and, and, and putting up with things and just generally being nice. We imagine a God we can understand. This is why the first three commandments of the ten in Exodus 20 are all divine warnings against vain and shallow thoughts about God. Warnings against syncretism. Warnings against putting God in a box and saying we can imagine him this way. Warnings against speaking of him lightly. And so there's idols in the camp. And so Jacob preaches to the family that they must remove the idols, and then they are washed and reclothed with a change of garments that symbolize that sin was not merely external to them. Sin uh, could not just be thrown away with these idols, but sin was something in them, something of them. They would require a new and purified life. Although this narrative is of a far earlier time, these acts of purification and of renunciation were codified in the law of Moses as necessary steps for consecration when approaching the Lord to worship Him. And so throughout the Scripture, God's people are giving commands of what to do when we come to worship. 
What should we do when we come to worship our God? So that they are not attacked on their journey. So this is one of the names of God in in Scripture, the fear of Isaac. Why? Because God causes terror. And he protects his people. And then once they're at Bethel, which means house of God, Jacob renamed the place the God of the house of God. And there he buried Deborah, Rebekah's maidservant, naming that place Oak of Weeping. And this burial introduces a second major theme of this chapter. Though promised blessing and eternal life, God's people must endure hardship and death. The death of Deborah is the first of several in this chapter. In fact, they're intermingled throughout the chapter uh, to give this uh, second main theme. Uh, Despite God's hand on his life, causing everything to work out for his good, Jacob's life is filled with hardship. Later in Genesis uh, 47.9, Jacob will refer to the years of his life as few and evil. He was separated from his mother because of their deceitful schemes, which also caused the division with his brother Esau. He has suffered the violation of his daughter Dinah because he camped too closely to the Canaanites. And now the deaths of his late mother's nurse, his favored wife during childbirth, and his father all take place, along with the violation of his wife Bilhah by his own son. Throughout his life, Jacob faces tragic and distressing situations. We'll skip to verse 16 for now. They traveled from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. This is Jacob's beloved wife. He has four. He likes one. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Now, when the author says that the pillar is there till this day, it doesn't mean today when we read it, it's here till this day. It's the, it was still there the day that the author wrote it. On her deathbed, Rachel names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of wailing or mourning, which is not a very nice name. And so Jacob once again takes leadership and renames him Benjamin, son of the right hand, which can either mean uh, son of good fortune, which would neatly contrast the mother's meaning, or son of the south, which would refer to Benjamin's place of birth in Canaan. All the other sons were born up north in Padanaram. Benjamin, the youngest, is born in the south. So maybe, maybe the name has two meanings. The death of Jacob's beloved wife is linked here with the birth of his treasured son to show how intergenerational God's covenant with this family really is. This family suffers death, but God sustains new life. 
The covenant of God has not failed despite the pain of loss. This is also evident in the death of Isaac, Jacob's father, in verse 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac had lived a long life full of blessing. In his old age, he was able to rest at Hebron where his mother and father had been buried. But Isaac and Jacob after him would be named among those, Hebrews eleven thirteen, who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city." And so Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Deborah and Rachel all died. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The promises that he made to them were in a language they could understand, with blessings expressed in things they could see, fruitfulness in the land, many children, But the truth of God's covenant blessing was far more than they could even imagine. God's faithfulness would bring them into his own family through Christ Jesus, who has prepared an eternal home for them, along with us who share the faith of Abraham. In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. And in this world, there is still trouble ahead for Jacob. Another deep grief in the rebellion of his eldest son, Genesis 35, 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. The sin and death reported in this section serve to show with irrefutable evidence that God's blessings continue in spite of sin and death. Sin and death, in fact, are chief enemies that Jesus would overthrow in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so while the blessing is on Jacob, and God is faithful, and he will keep his promises to this people, they go through these brutal things, hard things. You know, these deaths even while giving birth, these, these family unfaithfulnesses, these, these rebellions, you may have experienced some of these sorts of things, hopefully not as badly as this family, but this chapter is filled with tragedy. But God is faithful through it all, and that's what we're going to see here. Reuben's actions 
are, are not simply sexually motivated here. This is a, a bold political grasp for power in that day. It, it's making a, a statement that, they, that he may be taking the lead in the tribe, becoming the ruler. And by sleeping with Bilhah, Reuben makes sure that his own mother, Leah, would not be supplanted as Jacob's new chief wife after the death of her sister, Rachel. So there's four wives. Jacob likes one, and Reuben makes sure that Rachel's maidservant, who Jacob married as a concubine, would not take the place of the new chief wife, but Leah would, and thus assuring his own position in the family. But his attempts to bolster his position of authority ends up compromising it. Now, again, Jacob's passive. It says, Israel heard of it, which seems like a statement that should be followed by some immediate action. Instead, Jacob is silent until his, near his death in Genesis 49, 3-4. He says of Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so along with Simeon and Levi, according to their actions in the previous chapter, Reuben is eliminated from leadership, leaving Jacob's fourth son, Judah, to assume preeminence in Israel and the line of kings through King David down to Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, come from the line of Judah. So this is setting up the future story as well. Well, what we see here is that sin and death are still present realities among God's chosen people. But through it all, he brings about his purposes. Despite the sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder, God faithfully brought Jacob's family to worship him at Bethel. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the place where God had initially met with Jacob. And so once again, God appears where Jacob had received God's promise and had made his vow to worship God in this place once again. Now, Jacob's new name, Israel, had already been introduced, but only now is it used appropriately. A new person has been formed. A new community is convened. Not only has Jacob buried the foreign gods, but he is to bury what has become for all practical purposes a foreign nature, a Jacob nature. And so he is called here not only to put aside the foreign gods, but to put off the old self, the old nature. 
And so along with new garments, Jacob receives his new name from God a second time. And these things are connected quite often in the Bible, the giving of a new name and new garments to show that it is a completely new person. And so Jacob has terrible sin in his family, goes through terrible things, hardships, loss, death, and yet through it all, God's blessing is upon him and he makes of him a new person with an eternal hope that is secure through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob then worships with actions that are nearly identical to what he had done his first time at Bethel in his first personal experience with God. He set up the stone pillar, poured wine on it, and anointed it with oil, and reestablished it as a place of worship, and named it once again uh, the same name that he had named it last time. And so these, these strange rituals once again affirm the formation of an alternative community, which is called the faithfulness. This new community, which is founded by purification, renunciation, reclothing, renaming, but ultimately they are formed because they have received a promise. So there's the work of God and, and then there's the work of Jacob. It's the work of God that inspires and, and produces the work in Jacob. God gives a promise. Now the community responds. They put off the old self. They're reclothed and renamed by God according to his promise. Verse 11 and 12, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And so Jacob, once again, receives the promise which was given to Abraham and Isaac and to Adam and Eve and Noah before them, a promise of great fruitfulness and provision. And among Jacob's progeny will be kings. And this brings us to chapter 36. So if you have your Bible with you now, turn with me to chapter 36, or look on your phone if you don't have a Bible. That can be a Bible too. It pains me not to read the whole thing because it is very important to me to preach verse by verse, and it seems like a shame to skip this chapter, but it is one of the longest in Genesis, and it is given over exclusively to the genealogy of Esau's family and lists of Edomite leaders. So if you just will look at that briefly, I, I have almost nothing to say about any of these names. These names are all unknowns. And they actually just seem to be haphazardly thrown together uh, by the author to give us this wall of names. And so I want to talk to you about what the point of this chapter is because it is directly related to the uh, genealogy of Jacob. This is a, a massive list of names. And... Almost none of the names have any discernible purpose. In fact, if there was ever a chapter in the Bible that the casual reader might not get anything out of, Genesis 36 is it. 
Now, now all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, But the purposes of this long chapter can be explained quite simply and quickly. Most of the first, or most of the main points are expressed in the first two verses, Genesis 36, 1 to 2. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. So the first main point here is that Esau is Edom, so that we're not confused about this as the name has been changed. And secondly, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. He marries the Hittite and Hivite women that God protected Jacob and his sons from intermarriage with. Most notably, Ahilabama, who was the great-granddaughter of Seir the Horite, who ruled in Edom before Esau arrived. But the primary point of Genesis 36 is comparative. Genesis 36, 31, there were kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So we've just read that Jacob was promised that kings would come from him, verse 11. But his genealogy up to this point in in verses 22 to 26 is a list of 12 sons. Esau, on the other hand, has become a great and powerful overlord, the father of the Edomites, ruling over clans, regions, and with uh, 11 clan leaders who descended from him directly. And under Esau, there were eight kings who ruled over Edom, and it says before any king reigned over the Israelites, despite the fact that Jacob had received this promise and not Esau. Now, it's important to understand the context of the first audience here. We've talked about the timing of the writing of Genesis in months past, and it's helpful here to note that this is one of the key passages which clearly show that the final edit of Genesis took place at the very earliest after King David conquered Edom, as chronicled in 2 Samuel 8, 13-14. And so for the original audience of Genesis, the Edomites were an object lesson in God's judgment. This was a powerful nation that God had utterly humiliated. Do you understand? So when we see this this tiny little genealogy of Jacob, 12 boys, and then we see this massive brick of text, this this genealogy of Edom, of, of Esau, which is all clan leaders and kings, this powerful nation compared to this small family what actually became to the people an object lesson of God's judgment. They were the people, Malachi 1, 3 to 4, who God hated, laid waste to their hill country, and whose heritage was left to the jackals of the desert. They would be known as the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so for the first audience, they know this. They know that Edom would be judged and, and brought to their knees, and, and eventually ultimately destroyed. Israel would conquer Edom. And so the audience knows that this temporary success will not last. 
So the promise blessing of God demands patience and faith. For now, Jacob is still a wanderer in a foreign land, while Esau conquers Seir. Israel is just a family, while Esau and his offsprings have become a great nation, kings over 11 clans. Jacob, in chapter 33, is bowing before Esau and calling him Lord. An utter reversal of the promise that God had given to Jacob. God promised over Jacob that Esau would bow to him and call him Lord. And then Jacob gives all of his treasure, all the things God had blessed him with, he hands it over to Esau to make peace with him. So much of the material wealth God had blessed him with goes to Esau. In a total, what seems to be a total reverse of God's promise to Jacob. And now, at the end of the story about Jacob and Esau, what seems to be so out of balance is that God had promised Jacob all these things. Right here at the end, he's promised he will be kings, but he's become 12 boys. And Esau, who did not receive the promise of God, is not part of the covenant that God had made with Jacob. He despised his birthright and was rejected by God. Esau has all the things that Jacob was looking forward to. And so this is important that we see this. The promised blessing of God will come in God's timing. And it demands patience and faith. Waiting while others prosper. Imagine being like Jacob, waiting while his brother, like Esau, was prospered. It would be a test of, of Jacob's personal faith and perseverance. The the wisdom books of the Bible later develop this theme more fully. The unrighteous prosper in worldly power and wealth, while the righteous seem at times to lag behind such prosperity. In, In your own time, look up Psalm 49 or Psalm 73. God will give all of the blessing He promised to Jacob, but only after refining him and testing his faith with trials of many kinds. Esau seems to experience all the goodness that the earth can offer. He has prestige and power and wealth and many offspring who become kings over a nation. But it is temporary. It is fleeting. And by the time the first audience is reading this, they know this is that nation that God utterly judged. God's people will go through trials of many kinds, but they will also receive far more than they can ask or even imagine. Jacob symbolically put on new garments and washed himself, but God gave him a name. And God's people are promised, those who have this covenant of Abraham, those who by faith are children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are promised, Revelation 3, we'll read verse 5 and then verse 12, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is the promise of Jesus to his people. I will give them new garments. And verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, 
the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Church, we cannot even imagine the full fulfillment of God's blessing on his people. Yes, through the Old Testament, there's, there's a growing understanding of what God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at first, they just understand it in human terms. God gives them wealth and, and multiple children as a sign of His blessing on them. This is how they perceive blessing to be. But through the life of Jacob, we see where he doesn't always keep these things. In fact, God decidedly takes them from Jacob and gives them to Esau temporarily. Because God's people must look up from the temporary and temporal and look up to the true blessing, the true hope, the eternal treasure we are granted in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so precious to us, and you have made it so. We thank you that you are revealing yourself to us. Lord, if any of us were to take it upon ourselves to come up with who we think God is like, we would have an idol rather than worship the true God. But because you have revealed yourself in Scripture, we are continually reprimanded. We are continually brought back on track. We are continually pointed back to the truth of who you are by the foundation of your word. And so we thank you that it is always pertinent. It is always what we need in our timing to hear. And Lord, we pray that by your word, through your spirit, you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. I pray that we would come to you, that we would purify ourselves in repentance, renouncing the old way, renouncing our old self, and so put on Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would go through every trial and circumstance that you have allowed for our good in your sovereign control and that we would rejoice in the discipline that we receive from our loving Father. We will rejoice in trials of many kinds because we know the hope that is secure in Jesus, that we receive every heavenly blessing, every part of Jesus' own inheritance, through the promise that you have given. Change our lives so that we will glorify you in this world, I pray. Amen.